Welcome to episode 204 of The Digital Life, a show about our insights into the future of design and technology. I'm your host, John Follett, and with me is founder and co-host, Dirk Niemeyer. Greetings, listeners. For our topic this week, we're going to look at how 3D printing is moving from the prototyping stage into production. To be a little bit more clear about that, additive fabrication is used uh, in a great many industries for creating prototypes of products uh, that, that are used to determine whether the, the product can uh, uh, make it or break it in the market. But up until now, uh, it's been, that's been the primary uh, usage of 3D printing is to create these prototypes, which is not to say that, that 3D printing is not used in production as, at all. But in the Financial Times this week, I uh, saw an article that the threshold, uh, the 50% threshold had been breached. We are now at 60% of the monies being spent on additive fabrication, 3D printing, are now going towards uh, production-related applications. And so that's significant for a number of reasons, uh, which we'll get into in the episode but I thought it would be fun to start with some of the examples of uh, 3D printing applications that, that are going into production. Uh, we'll, we'll start with something I found very unexpected, which was GE is actually 3D printing a piece of their one of their jet engines, which to me seems like, you know, that's a mission critical kind of thing, a jet engine part, if that you know, breaks or melts or yes, or, or whatever the problem is in flight, you have some serious uh, unrectifiable problems. So for GE to be using a uh, additively manufactured part in their jet engine says to me that at, at least over at GE, that process is mature now. And what is particularly interesting about GE's use is the way the part is put together, it's really meant to be fabricated uh, in this way. So I think it would take some, you know, uh, like 16 different types of welds to to put this part together. So so this is this is a part that would be difficult to create in a, you know, sort of a traditional manufacturing environment. This, this part is designed and fabricated in such a way that it's really meant to, you know, to be 3D printed. So that's something to watch out for because it's, it's taking, uh, it's enabling engineers and designers to come up with, with new ways of, um, uh, you know, creating these parts. You know, it's taking some of the restrictions off uh, that, that otherwise the manufacturing process would, uh, you know, uh, confine them, right? So, so engineers and designers may have more room to run now as they're creating uh, these jet engines over at GE. Yeah. So, so that's, that's one that I found uh, particularly interesting. So let's go from the amazing to the, to the truly mundane. Oh. Uh, another 3D printing application uh, for production is, is for uh, uh, dental Wear or the um, uh, what do what do you call those? The orthodontics. Uh, yeah, well, the um, retainers. That's that's the word I was looking for. Yeah. Those those are you know custom fit. Very important to get them right. 
Um, but I know this because my, you know, my dentist does this now and he says, oh, you know, they're going in, they're 3D printing these now. So you can go from, you know, the custom fit scan of your mouth uh, to a, uh, a retainer that really does exactly, you know, what needs to be done for you. Um, and the turnaround time is, you know, much quicker uh, than how they might have done that uh, previously. Hmm. So, so this, is, this is another area where customization. So, so we talked about, you know, taking the, the uh, chains off of the engineers and designers. The, the other side of it is, you know, something that's custom fit uh, just to you. That's another great great usage mm -hmm. of 3d printing. Yeah. Um, and we can already see that if you, you know, you go to your, go to your dentist. Um, and then a, uh, a third, um, example of, of productionizing 3d printing was one that, that, that you and I have been reading about, uh, in, in formula one, the McLaren racing team, is actually going and and uh, replacing parts on on their very sophisticated cars using uh, I think a Stratasys uh, 3D printer and and creating these uh, these parts rather quickly in relationship to you know the amount of time it, it would have taken them otherwise so they're going from like five weeks to 1.5 weeks yeah so so that's that's a huge advantage when you can shorten the production cycle. Uh, and create this part for for the car that will hopefully you know make it run better and enable you to get that those milliseconds to to win these Formula One races. Yeah. So so Dirk, I think we're we're at it at a point now where three D printing is really starting to to gain some ground. And do you see like when 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 you look at this? Um, uh, this change in the market. What what do you see? What do you, what do you see as as uh, the evolution of this process as it starts taking over more of manufacturing? Yeah, um, you know, to me, it's evolutionary. I don't know that it's such a big. I don't know that we've seen such a big step between the times we've talked about this before and where things are now. I mean, let's. Well, let me answer by way of sort of focusing on the examples. So. Uh, the GE example is a wonderful one for what the, the quality of, of the part is, for, for lack of a better word. So the sort of tolerances that you would need on a part in a jet engine are uh, basically as precise as you can get. And so that is um, a wonderful signifier for the quality that's possible. Now, that's the quality that's possible for a huge corporation that is supplying a part on a massively expensive vehicle, right? So it's it's almost at the level of um, proof of technology, not what's available to most of the people who want to use the technology. It's great that they have that tolerance, but it's still some ways away before um, it's it's going to matter, other than to this tiny um, you know percent of of companies and eventually people um, at all. Um, you know, the, the third example with the F1 car, I mean, look, you know, F1, F1 racing teams have, you know, a few vehicles that they create sp spending many millions of dollars. It's, it's about as custom of a, of, of a piece of transportation equipment as you can get. So 3D printing in that context, where already the, the expense in manufacturing the vehicle, the parts of the vehicle is massive. 
having a 3D platform that is mobile, that is local, that, you know, you could make design changes in real time and, and produce a different part. Like, that's like right in the wheelhouse of, of where this technology is today, right? Um, so it, that's a massively expensive and capital-intensive thing to do. But you know what? F1 teams are burning money. So who cares, right? And what the F1 team gets out of it is that, you know, um, just-in-time manufacturing, literally just-in-time, that gives them a great deal of customization. Um, you know, the what was your middle example? That was the retainer at our at, at our dentist. Yeah, you know, you mentioned the retainer, and I, I sometime last year I got something that keeps me from gnashing my teeth at night. And they took pictures of my mouth, and the dentist explained that she now manufactures them herself. I just nodded my head, um, but she might have three D printed that sucker. Um, it's certainly very possible that she did. So that's interesting too. I've had this 3D printed device in my mouth for months, it sounds like. Um, so no, it's, it's cool, but it's getting at what's, what is 3D printing great at? It's great at small batch. It's great at custom. It's great at B2B context. Um, it, you know, it's still not something that um, those of us looking to really impact our personal lives directly, I mean, that's not something that's terribly relevant to us. But we're seeing things that speak to a future that's very interesting. I mean, think about photography. So, uh, you know, unless you're a professional photographer with your own darkroom for, you know, 150 years-ish, uh, if you wanted to, to have your photographs become photographs, you have to take film in and somebody would come and, and process it and magically you'd have pictures on the other end. We're not even at that stage yet, but like that's the intermediate stage. Like great 3D printing first is going to be coming to us from this B2B intermediary that that a lot of people are coming in and paying money to. It's going to be a long time still until we're to the point where, you know, now photographic printing, your home printer is just cranking out what you need. Um, that's eventually where 3D printing is going to be. We're a long way away from that. We're not even yet to go down to the corner store model let alone have the machine in our in our house. I mean, yeah, there's 3D printers in people's houses. The the stuff they do is pretty crummy and or it's all pretty expensive depending on your your how you measure um, expense. So um, I mean, net net interesting stories, um, interesting progress. Um, the GE one in particular, just the quality, the jet engine. That's that's cool. Um, but there's a way to go. Yeah, I think some of these. Uh problems or uh, restrictions that that we've been talking about are going to be uh, handled or circumvented uh, in, in in a couple different ways. One is I do think there is there is an interesting opportunity for uh, a change in the way our product life cycle is handled. So so right now today, I mean we're starting to see more, more greening of the product life cycle, right? People are thinking about the packaging. They're thinking about, um, you know, breaking apart things when, when, when the products are done and reusing and recycling, uh, uh, different parts. So, so, so that's great. And those are all, uh, sort of design driven in, in, in one way or another, but there is, there is the possibility, you know, we're talking about, you know, future applications of additive fabrication. And when, when you think about that, you think about a sort of 
digital and physical integration that we don't quite have yet. So you pointed out some of the physical touch points that 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 are difficult. Um, like we don't have the high quality uh, printers. Uh, at the same time, you know, we don't necessarily have that huge library of printable parts um, or things that you can purchase, right? So if I want something, uh, you know, a product, uh, say some sneakers, right? Um, I don't just go on Amazon and pick out a model and then, you know, my 3D printer at home spits out the sneakers overnight or something like that. Now, we see that Adidas is in the process of printing some, I think there's like 5,000 shoes they're printing, you know, the, the, the mid insoles or some portion of it's getting 3D printed with the idea that they'll be going towards customized sneakers, you know, in, in the future. So very slowly you see these incremental steps towards a future where uh, it's more of an on-demand uh, fabrication of things as the materials. So a huge problem right now is, you know, there are only certain materials that you can 3D print, right? right. It's very limited. Uh, so the sneakers that you're going to get are going to be made out of a, a fixed set of ma materials that, you know, otherwise, um, you know, you probably wouldn't want those materials in your sneakers. Oh, doesn't it sound comfortable, John? So, so, so that needs to be uh, rectified that that the level and number of materials needs to be increased. But, you know, we can see this possibility where the digital thing resides in some e-commerce capacity. And then when we want it, uh, there's there's places where you can get things printed. Your 7-Eleven for, you know, printing a plum. Photomat, John, photomat. Right, the, the photomat of uh, printing your uh, your sneakers or... Uh, your new coffee maker or whatever the heck that is. And so I find that particularly compelling because it eliminates some of the cycle of waste that has just been a huge burden to ourselves and the planet since the advent of the industrial age. So embedded in our consumption and capitalism and this whole idea of, you know, uh, you know, more and more and more products is that, you know, we're, we're creating, uh, you might as well have, you know, straight from the drawing board to the landfill uh, a cycle here where you're interested in something for a while and then it gets thrown in a, you know, thrown in a bag and picked up by waste management and taken to the, to the dump. So I see the potential in additive fabrication to create this uh, much more virtuous sort of usage of materials and and eliminate some of the some of the uh, waste. I mean, think about you know just the transportation alone. We're we're creating this uh, digital pipeline rather than having the sneakers put in the box and the box put on the UPS truck and the UPS truck burning up the fuel to come to my house to give me the box. I sure. throw out the box. Yep. I wear the shoes. I get tired of the shoes. They stink. I throw them out, and Dude. they sit in the landfill yeah. for the rest of eternity. A lot of unpleasant things in that trail there, John. Yeah, <laughs> too many. So I do see that there's going to be the opportunity for a design-influenced product life cycle. And I say design in the largest sense, not, you know, uh, necessarily industrial designers or yeah. fashion designers or sneaker designers or whatever, but, but design sort of very broadly that we can create uh, a, a more uh, virtuous product life cycle. So that I find to be uh, very exciting. 
And I think we see some hints of that in, in, the, in the stories that we examine today. Yeah. Um, so whether or not that can really happen, I think, speaks to that infrastructure problem that you raised earlier, yeah. uh, which is sort of uh, there, there's a company or an organization called 3D Hubs that is basically this open uh, network of 3D printers where you can say, oh, I want to get my object printed. I see there's someone in Brooklyn near me who can, you know, who can print that on their Stratasys printer and they'll, yeah. they'll, uh, you know, I'll upload it and they'll print it out and I'll go and meet them and we, I will have paid for it via PayPal or whatever. So not quite the, uh, the photo mat yet, but very tiny step forward, uh, in terms of access. So, so I know that, um, um, this is, this is a little bit fanciful, but I, I do see this, this tipping point that we mentioned earlier where the, um, you know, we've gone from that prototype stage into production. I, I, I see that as a significant, um, a significant flag anyway, that, that the possibility for such a, uh, such a product life cycle is there. Yeah, I'd be interested to, to speak with an expert or, you know, have a guest on to talk about when, how, how far are we away from this all being virtual? And what I mean by that is, you know, right now, if I want to buy an appliance, I, I go to a store, they have a bajillion appliances there that I'm, I'm touching, I'm looking at. I mean, it's, it's, an, it's an obvious logical step to have the shopping experience move to virtual reality, have the purchase experience be online, have the fabrication be maybe in the same place an appliance store used to be. But now it's fabricating the custom appliance, right, um, with all of the features that I've chosen and that I've paid for as I've shopped in a, in a virtual way. Because it's sort of silly that right now we have these giant stores. All these products are shipped to them and sit there. It's bad business to sit on a lot of inventory. Um, and, you know, it's not always great to experience in the store with the salespeople and what all of that looks like. So the intermediate step is, I think, some sort of virtual reality shopping and then fabrication in um, sort of purpose-based stores, that'll shift, of course, to fabrication in more general purpose stores, which will then shift to fabrication, you know, in our in our house, basically. I expect, at least for things up to a certain size. But um, what I don't have a sense of is what is the time horizon for all of those things happening? Uh, we're not even to the first sort of milepost yet on that from, from a consumer perspective. So that's where we'll leave our discussion for today. But if you're an expert in 3D printing, please get in touch. We'd love to have you on the show. Listeners, remember that while you're listening to the show, you can follow along with the things that we're mentioning here in real time. Just head over to thedigitallife.com. That's just one L in the digital life. And go to the page for this episode. We've included links to pretty much everything mentioned by everybody. So it's a rich information resource to take advantage of while you're listening or afterward if you're trying to remember something that you liked. You can find The Digital Life on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Player FM, and Google Play. And if you want to follow us outside of the show, you can follow me on Twitter at John Follett. That's J-O-N-F-O-L-L-E-T-T. And of course, the whole show is brought to you by Involution Studios, which you can check out at goinvo.com. That's G-O-I-N-V-O dot com. Dirk? 
You can follow me on Twitter at dnemeyer. That's at D-K-N-E-M-E-Y-E-R. And thanks so much for listening. So that's it for episode 204 of The Digital Life. For Dirk Niemeyer, I'm John Follett, and we'll see you next time. Bye.